In New Jersey, we found some key Welcome to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Perino. And I'm Casey McLean. This week, we're going to give you another coronavirus update. Then we'll take you to Murphy's Corner, talk about what he's been doing in the past week or anything that's coming up. After that, <laughs> yeah, which is a lot, yeah. After that, we're going to talk about a New Jersey mayor who faces backlash after making some comments at a Black Lives Matter protest. Then we'll talk about a barbershop owner getting creative in New Jersey. I think it's a cool story. After that, we'll talk about a New Jersey cop killing a man. Then a New Jersey judge reversed the conviction of the Bridgegate mastermind. We'll talk about that. Uh, a classic scandal. <laughs> People in Franklinville, New Jersey, uh, mocked George Floyd's death. So we're going to talk about that. Then a New Jersey woman goes full racist. <laughs> talk a little bit about what happened there because it kind of made the news. And uh, the, the rebellion at the Jersey Shore it has begun. We'll let you know what that rebellion is and what we think of it. After the headlines, Casey's going to talk about uh, War of the Worlds. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what is freedom and like what does that mean for when we're reopening the economy and how we should think about stuff like this. And is it free? <laughs> yeah, is it free or is it free and dumb? So we'll see. I'll let you know. Uh, all right, so start it off. We'll talk about the coronavirus numbers as uh, we always do. Yeah, start it off hot. As of June 6th. Uh, it's not, these numbers aren't up to date. We don't have any. God, Mike. No, no, no. This is this is the most recent up-to-date numbers. Ooh. I'm saying like oh, we don't have any new numbers up-to-date all from last week. All right, so it looks like there's been uh, an issue with the coronavirus case reporting in the past week. According to NJ.com, the New Jersey, this was posted on uh, June 14th, the New Jersey coronavirus deaths increased to 12,625 with... 166,881 total cases. This is as phase two of the reopening starts Monday, which is today, the day we're recording. The state reported 40 new deaths and 305 new cases in the last 24 hours, although officials have warned of lags in reporting over the weekend. So on Saturday, the death toll from COVID-19 in New Jersey uh, since early March surpassed the total of 12,565 New Jerseyans who died in the four years of World War II. That's pretty major. As for the, the usual day-to-day -day numbers, it doesn't seem like I have the data on them as I normally do, but it, it still kind of looks like it's trending downwards. But I think that's a pretty big milestone, honestly, uh, passing the amount of deaths of uh, New Jerseyans who died in World War II. Yeah. That's um, just given the extent of how major this is, and we're reopening. Sure, the we flattened the curve in New Jersey, uh, but we don't have like any kind of national plan to prevent people from uh, reinfecting New Jersey. Other countries have instituted like say travel restrictions, but I mean that's probably in some sense unconstitutional in the United States. I'm not sure, but yeah, it uh, seems like also some states have seen spikes in their figures too, like um, Tennessee and Nashville. It's becoming yeah. basically a new hotspot. It's basically any state that has, like we said before, an attractive nuisance, uh, you're seeing numbers spike. So you have restaurants and places like Nashville is a place I think was slowly reopening after the, the countrywide closure. But you're seeing a new spike come in because people are fleeing places like New Jersey or New York and wanting to go on vacation and wanting to like 
explore the country because they can't do anything at home. And they're thinking, okay, if I go to a different state that doesn't have the numbers and the regulations that my state has, I'll be able to enjoy myself and take a break from quarantine. But what's happening is there's a, a spike and there's a there's repercussions for those actions. And New Jersey opening up, it's just going to be, you know, a beacon for other people to flee their yeah. Their homes. I actually have some numbers on that. So I was curious. So I looked up uh, Jersey Shore property ownership, and uh, each town in Jersey Shore publishes, uh, Jersey Shore publishes uh, the percent of properties that are residential properties that are owned by New Jersey residents. So I was looking at it, and some of them were really high, like Monmouth Beach and uh, Belmar, all are over 90% are owned by residents actually there. But some of the really popular ones, like, or was it Wildwood? Uh, yeah. 52.8% are owned by residents. So almost half are owned by uh, people Mom outside of Jersey. Yeah. And then you get, it gets even further in places like Cape May, only 48%, North Wildwood, 45%, Ocean City, 43%. Uh, and then it goes some, even as low as uh, places like Stone Harbor and Avalon have 296 and 27.5%. Uh, wow. uh, ownership by residents. So the, I think we were actually pretty right to worry about people coming to that. And that doesn't even give you the whole picture. A lot of people just come to the Jersey Shore for, you know, like a day or two, maybe right on hotels. But there's clearly a case of there's people who uh, own property there and, you know, they're probably going to go. The other thing is you were right pointing out uh, other states um, kind of going through what we were going through in April now. So some of the numbers, if you look coming out of, uh, I forget the state. I think it was, was Arizona. Is Arizona that had that huge spike? It's one, one of them uh, in the southwest uh, and, and the south. They're having numbers that are like very close to what, where we were in like March and April. And there's like no guarantee that's not going to come back this way. I mean, yeah, saying it, people. It, <laughs> we it, have it, we don't have borders in the in this country. Yeah, and people think that is the same thing. We're the spring breakers, you know, when this first started. They thought that oh, I'm young. I, I'm not going to be, you know, hit with Corona that bad if I were to get it. And then they're traveling. Not saying that it's better if you do like a road trip, you know, your contamination is probably going to be lower risk. But if you're flying, like most people do to get to across the country, you know, it's, it's not going to be good. And people are yeah. going to Texas and Arizona and New Mexico, probably on like a stop to Mexico. And I'd be interested to see what those borders, what those hard borders are doing to prevent the spread. Yeah, yeah, me too. So moving on, let's go to Murphy's Corner because there'll be some more coronavirus related of stuff. Of course. Talking there. Murphy's Corner. <laughs> what, uh, do I go through his? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I forgot the call. Yeah, <laughs> the executive word. Yeah, yeah, my every brain's week, working Mike, slow on Every week. Yeah. <laughs> So in Murphy's Corner, the executive order is going on right now. We have Executive Order 152. Governor Murphy signs Executive Order lifting limits on indoor and outdoor gatherings. So the press release for Executive Order 152 addresses also Executive Order 153 passed on the same day. Governor Murphy signs Executive Order opening pools effective June 22nd and opening additional outdoor recreational businesses. So the press release for these two combined executive order says that 
they, like I said, number one, they raise the limits on outdoor and indoor gatherings and open pools effective June 22nd and additional outdoor recreational businesses effective immediately. And Governor Murphy said, quote, with more and more businesses reopening, we are no longer requiring New Jerseyans to stay at home, but we are asking you to continue to be responsible and safe. These actions will put us even more firmly on our road back and complement these steps we've already taken to begin our restart and recovery. So the effective immediately indoor gatherings are limited to 25% of the capacity of the room. But regardless of the room's capacity, the limit shall never be less than 10 or more than 50 people. Um, Interesting way to word that and all attendees must at the gathering must wear face coverings unless for medical reason or if the individual is under two years old and then also the six feet apart at all times physical items may not be shared by multiple attendees unless sanitized before and after uses outdoor gatherings are limited to 100 people and attendees are supposed to be six feet apart and everyone's supposed to wear you know face mask and be six feet apart and it says that the nothing in the order shall prevent a person at the gathering from momentarily removing their mask to place or receive an item in their mouth if done for religious purposes or for health and safety. It's a, it's a weird way to like <laughs> just kind of allow for the like acceptance of the what do they call it the, the communion or Eucharist. yeah com- yeah and also this press release says that the outdoor swimming pools so for executive order one fifty three they can be open effective six a.m. on Monday June twenty second provided that it complies with standards and policies that will be issued by the health department. Pool facilities may open for the purpose of lifeguard training and lifeguard swimming lessons prior to June 22nd. So this, I just want to caution everyone that the idea, just think about it. If you're at the pool, how often are you going to sanitize things like in in any public area like bathrooms how often are those going to be sanitized who's putting these orders into place you know what i mean to make sure that every single pool whether it's like a country club or a public pool or community pool who's offering the sterilization equipment for these places like where are they supposed to be ordering it from it just seems like it's not going to get done and there's just going to be more contamination what do you think like there's no caution i was in starbucks today <laughs> And I saw uh, two hipsters just kind of sitting on their uh, laptops after they finished their meal, just chilling. And, and hey. I mean, they had masks on, but masks aren't, aren't, don't protect you completely. And it no. certainly, certainly won't protect you if you just stay in Starbucks all day. No. I just thought it was strange. There was literally no reason to, to stay in Starbucks after getting your meal. Or they could have at least sat outside. Um, yeah. But, but now that's... they just... That's also the issue with reopening. Yeah, there's no caution. And people are going to start making, I've been already looking into making reservations at restaurants because I want to support our local restaurants now that it's reopening. And I'm excited to over tip and get in, get out kind of eating because that's what you're supposed to do during this time. You're not supposed to hold a seat longer than you are consuming the products because Actually, Starbucks, like you're not tipping anyone in Starbucks while you sit there and check your email and write your blog and surf the web. Yeah, you know? I just don't understand how hard this is to do. I watched a documentary, I'd say it was in February, maybe it was March, where uh, a Japanese filmmaker went to different cities in China, uh, South Korea, 
Taiwan and uh, uh, Japan and just compared the different methods of what they were doing. And one of the things I remember was the there there was an extensive contact tracing done in uh, I forget where he was in China, but in one of the cities there where when people would go and eat, they would fill out a form uh, stating that they were there. So that way, if any of them developed some kind of symptoms or they could or trace, had it, it back they could trace and... where it was at, at, the, at that point at, at in time, it's already been a few months and the place wasn't like a huge hotspot, but they were, it was probably comparable to like a little better than New Jersey is now, you know, in terms of like how many cases and, and infections they were getting. And uh, people were still allowed to eat at restaurants and stuff, but they like limited it to like one person or like family per table, but you had like divide, they had dividers set up between the tables. Uh, there was like social distancing practice inside and it just looked all regular and like well-planned. And um, yeah, and it's just, it's, it's just baffles to me that how we just, we don't plan stuff. Like people yeah. are complaining. I'll get to this later. People are complaining that Murphy's being dictatorial and, and tyrannical and stuff. And there's some, I can understand why some people would think that, but this has got to be the most incompetent dictatorship or tyranny ever <laughs> right i mean like when you when you can still go outside uh uh and congregate on mass when you can still uh um get taco just bell like like, like just get taco <laughs> bell and sit inside of a uh starbucks for no reason like how tyrannical is it like yeah is that, even, is that really how we want to describe these things i don't know we, we need to do better we need to be more organized and actually like rigorous stuff because we're just gonna we're prolonging this we're already yeah. having an uh having to stay locked down longer than they did in Hubei because they actually just dealt with it in Hubei instead of just here where we just pretend it doesn't exist over and over and over again. Well, moving on to his next executive order and his last one so far, for at least for our broadcast. Executive Order 154, Governor Murphy signs executive order allowing personal care service facilities to open effective June 22nd. So in his press release, Governor Murphy, um, he says, quote, we're able to confidently announce this important step in our restart and recovery because the health metrics tell us we can. With the proper health and safety protocols in place, personal care business owners who are anxious to get back to serving their customers and communities will have the opportunity to do so. So under the governor's executive order, personal care service facilities include cosmetology shops, barber shops, beauty salons, hair braiding shops, nail salons, electrology facilities. wonder what that's about. Uh, spas, including day spas and medical spas, at which solely elective and cosmetic medical procedures are performed, massage parlors, tanning salons, and tattoo parlors. So the safeguards in place include, for all these facilities, include limiting services to appointment only, performing health screening, including temperature checks on clients and staff prior to entry to the facility, requiring use of personal protective equipment and requiring clients to wear face coverings at all times, regardless of the service they are receiving, unless face down on a massage table or where doing so would inhibit an individual's health and ensuring that all staff client pairs maintain at least six feet distance between other staff client pairs unless separated by physical barriers, adopting enhanced cleaning and disinfection practices, and lastly, staying informed about the new developments and guidance related to COVID-19. So, interesting. <laughs> this is something that a lot of people have been waiting for, and 
I again just who is providing the facilities with the sanitization products and who is going to be monitoring that and it's all things that I'm sure these individual businesses are working with the health department but it's something that you should be as a customer to any of these places be cautiously aware of you know making sure that not only you or the staff or your fellow you know customers making sure everyone's following the rules. And it's going to be one of those instances where it might be, you know, you don't want to be a narc, but people can die. Like that's, <laughs> that's where we're at. People are dying from this. And we got to make sure that if we are opening up, we're doing it smart and safely and not throwing caution to the wind. Kind of seems like we are, to be honest, throwing yeah, caution but... to the wind. <laughs> and uh, a little disappointed because I had some hope with the way he was uh, originally articulated as like six phase plan or whatever. Yeah. But, oh, well. Um, we are where we are now. Yep. <laughs> Moving so, on. That's the end of Murphy's Corner. Um, no, I have some stuff. Uh, okay. Yeah. So Murphy went, this kind of made big news because Murphy went to one of the Black Lives Matter protests. And obviously the protests are technically not allowed. Uh, they violate his stay-at-home order. And then he went and violated his own stay-at-home order, which conservatives love to point out called it hypocritical which i guess like strictly it kind of is but talking about hypocrisy is pretty much point pointless because it like to me it ignores like what's actually at play so nj.com had an article talking about this published on the 11th by brent uh johnson saying uh, they quote what Mur uh, murphy said i don't think anyone who stands up and joins others with great passion a uh, passion and speaks out against the strain of racism in this country, which is now clocking in at 401 years, is setting any kind of bad example. We need leaders, we need rank and file, we need people all over this country to stand up and peacefully demand action. He also continued to call on protesters to wear face coverings, practice social distancing, and get tested for the virus. In the picture where he's marching, no one's practicing social distancing, including the governor, which I just thought was kind of funny. But, uh, I'll kind of get into this a little bit later, but the kind of accusation of hypocrisy here is, to me, not really uh, true. I'm not saying that Murphy's not being hypocritical. It's just not the most interesting thing to say. Everyone knows politicians are hypocritical. It's funny to point it out sometimes, <laughs> but like it's not like that it's interesting. It's in their nature. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting. So the Republicans have been pointing that out, and basically Murphy's answered to that was he said this is a moment that i think is bigger than any of us right now now what's interesting is some of the protesters have been cited for uh um violating social distancing rules and there's been questions about whether or not he will pardon coronavirus violators after he marched with the black wise matter protests and i think that's an interesting question because to me he probably shouldn't pardon people who just violated it but if anyone was part of the protests he should violate it uh, should pardon them not because it's hypocritical, but because we can have a clear hierarchy of importance of things, right? Yeah. Like, for instance, getting a haircut's not high up on the list of things that are <laughs> essential for uh, one to survive. You can go uh, with your hair uh, growing out, or you could just, you know, cut it yourself. Um, however, police across the entire country, including in New Jersey, massacring uh, uh, people, largely people of color, but also poor whites as well, um, and constantly being abusive in their positions of power. That's extremely important, whether or not there's a uh, epidemic or whether there's not an epidemic. 
And there's never a good time to have a protest against police brutality. This is not the best time to have one with an epidemic, but it just happens to be the time that, it, that it's occurring. So we can't just stop it from happening. Um, <laughs> it, yeah. Uh, it, and also, if you are arresting protesters and, and jailing them, you're increasing the likelihood of if they have corona, if they haven't had it, it's increasing the likelihood of the disease spreading. That's a great so, point. So putting them in crowded cells isn't, isn't a good way yeah. to do it. Yeah. So it's not, again, it's just like, is it hypocritical? Yeah, it's a little hypocritical, but it's a good but, kind uh, of hypocritical. Well, yeah, but uh, I don't want to say it's a good kind of hypocritical because it does annoy me when politicians aren't, aren't consistent but consistency is the, not the most important thing because because sometimes life is contradictory you you want to prioritize a but then b comes and b is extremely important and you need to do something do something about it so you do b are you now hypocritical because uh you said for like months that a was more important no like in most parts of the world you would just say like it's a, a, a like you were flexible <laughs> right it's not about your 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 principles aren't being these principles aren't being in conflict nobody's denying that these pro that protesting now is a little dangerous in terms of the coronavirus. Nobody's denying that. If you go to any of these protests, people have masks on and they'll admit to you, yeah, they might get coronavirus. What they're saying is that that risk is worth it for the cause. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't think that's necessarily wrong. It's just, it's just strange. I just the, the hypocrisy <laughs> is so funny. I don't want to get too sidetracked. Um, but it's we'll get more into me. it when we discuss freedom. <laughs> yeah, it is disappointing to me that he won't say that he'll pardon protesters or um other uh, people who have violated the rules uh, it's classic politician dodging answers well it's an election year and get yeah. get used to it there's gonna be a lot of dodging going yeah on. exactly so there was another story i want to talk about with murphy nj.com reported today that the uh, tensions are building between uh, governor murphy and democrats in congress over the governor's coronavirus responses which is kind of interesting because i didn't think there was a conflict there so i'll just kind of read from the article murphy declared that brave Jersey service members shouldn't play any part of Trump's occupying army. Uh, and he ordered the state's National Guard in, to Washington in response to the protests over police brutality that landed on the doorstep of President Trump. Another questioned whether New Jersey had crossed the line, arguing, we need our National Guard helping the COVID-19 response in New Jersey, not helping turn Washington into an armed camp. The rare shots of fellow Democrats are more significant than they might first appear, NJ Advanced Media has learned. For weeks, tensions between Murphy and members of his own party in Washington have been growing. Last week, according to sources, the delegation's frustrations with the governor hit a boiling point during a daily conference call. There's a lot of questions that we have not gotten answers to, complained one congressional aide who, as others, only agreed to talk with the NJ advanced media on conditions of anonymity, blah, 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 blah. The, new <laughs> the sources said that frustrations have grown over Murphy's administration's response to the coronavirus crisis and a lack of information being shared with officials in Washington. They said while there was dissatisfaction with sending the National Guard to Washington, members of the delegation are also upset that the administration has failed to address New Jersey's continuing unemployment fiasco, saying that their congressional offices have been swamped with complaints from constituents filing for claims. Others continue to question the administration's handling of the outbreaks of the virus in the state's nursing homes. These questions and concerns sources said have not been adequately addressed or answered. I actually have to agree with that. I don't think these things have been adequately addressed or answered by the uh, Murphy administration. He's actually quite dismissive of uh, the entire unemployment fiasco, citing a number that I don't think anyone believes that 94% uh, of the people, uh, did you see that? He said 94% of the people who, uh, need unemployment have received unemployment according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but there was a study showing that 25% of the uh, claimants are still waiting for money. So Sounds my guess like... is 
my guess is that the 94% number is is actually the percent of claims that have been filed and processed. Yeah. But you can get your claim filed and processed and still not receive money because that's how slow and incompetent the New Jersey Department of, uh, of Labor is. So the governor's office obviously declined the compliment or comment on any of this stuff. And I just thought it was interesting because I didn't realize there was a split between the congressional Dems and Murphy. I, I, I guess, I don't know. It's just not something I thought of, thought about. Uh, what, what do you think? I mean, I think Murphy has always had the disconnect and you've had it within the state and you're going to see it in Washington too. Because I think we talked about it, I think the year of the five governors or previous like governor reviews, the idea that a New Jersey governor, the next step would be going to Washington in one avenue or another. A politician's always looking for the next step. And I don't think Murphy's planning to just end at governor, or he might do the revolving door into some other governmental capacity, whether it's being an, like an ambassador or heading a, a a state department. But it doesn't seem like anyone likes him. That's why I find funny because uh, <laughs> he's been screaming about needing uh, money from Congress, right, to fund New Jersey to get a bailout, which we do need, right? And that's presumably something that our state legislatures, I'm sorry, like our federal representatives also I would want to give. So don't you think he would be working harder and try to have a closer relationship with two senators and several uh, uh, congressmen and women to yeah. try to push those things? But does it doesn't um, look like it's going to happen. Look, uh, yeah, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. But And I think it's because uh, he's a newcomer and he's got money yeah. and he used that money to get his governor seat. And everyone in politics is looking for their next step, that their, their next little like, path that they're going to leap to. And the senators... Booker in particular has done many a campaign bid for president. And <laughs> I don't I don't know if Murphy is poising himself to run a presidential election anytime soon. But I do think any focus that he draws negative or positive has a reflection on everyone that's around him in New Jersey in, in the federal capacity. So I don't I don't really know. It's a weird time for New Jersey politics. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I do wonder what's gonna happen with Murphy uh later for his career. Right? If New Jersey's just a stepping stone for him like it is for most people for who world uh, domination. For world domination, <laughs> yeah. All right. <sighs> Moving on. Uh is, is that it for Murphy's corner? I don't have any more. Yeah, I think that's about it. But uh, one more comment on the reopening. Uh, there was one piece that I saw in the news that I'm very happy about, but New Jersey libraries are starting to reopen and you could pick up books. So just check your local library. This is a little, oh, little drop. They should be operating sometime soon. So that's something to keep your, your ear to the ground for to see what's coming. That's great. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to talk about a New Jersey mayor facing backlash for telling protesters uh, he's pro-black. You might think <laughs> like, wait, what? Like he got backlash for just what? saying he's pro-black? Wait until you hear the full statement. So uh, this is reported by CNN. Uh, the mayor of a mostly white New Jersey township is apologizing for his comments during an anti-discrimination protest organized by residents of a neighboring community. Protesters challenged Clark Township Mayor <sighs> Sal Bona. <laughs> Bona Corso, I don't know, at a June 6th rally to say that he say was pro-black. Say it Italian, Bona Corso. Sal Bona Corso. <laughs> uh, he said it sounds like you're moving your hand with that, but we'll move I actually on. did move my hand, I swear. I swear. <laughs> I wish we had that on camera. Um, so he said, quote, I am pro-black, 
for all the good black people that I know in my life. Oh, my God. Yeah. Why would you ever say that? Like, you can even assume that I, I don't know anything about this mayor, right? He's a Republican. I, is he? Is <laughs> the he? the Hill article I saw this in says that he is a Republican mayor in New Jersey. That makes so um, much sense. Yeah. Republicans, like, in general, do not know how to talk about black people at all. Because remember, do you remember when Trump he said that he has good relationship with the blacks or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a it, classic Republican thing to have no idea how to talk about black people. Whereas, like, Dems will just kind of... Um, like condescendingly assume that like uh, uh, all uh, black people are like woke monoliths with the same view. With the same view, it's it's crazy how. Yeah, uh, and it's just if you look at the demographics that they represent, typically, you know, when you're out of touch with a group of people, and I'm not talking about just race, but if you're out of touch and you're trying to connect, it comes off as you're out of touch and you're trying to connect. And this is case in point, and it's a thing that's been talked about a lot with the Black Lives Matter movement is that it's not... Like, there was one a protester that I saw on Instagram. They were speaking about how one protester who was Black had a shirt that said something like, I have a master's or like I, I'm a, I have a PhD, some kind of shirt that said, you know, I'm elevating myself from the, like, the stereotype of a criminal who's being shot and like targeted. And... And the person pointed out that it's not about that. You know what I mean? Like a police officer who is racist and is going to shoot you is not going to check first if you have a PhD or what your income is. Or, or like the, you know. the, the, the Central Park Karen. Yes. That guy, that guy was like, a, I forget, a PhD or master's or whatever from like Harvard or something like that. But not that it matters. That's just the point. Yeah. Like it doesn't None of matter. It matters. And um <laughs> And, and you can have a criminal weird. record and still like get pulled over and be shot like that. Uh, What's they're saying simple... about George Floyd? Like yeah. trying to be like, you know, um, well, you know, he counterfeited or something. Like, I forget what it was. Yeah, uh, they said he paid for something with a counterfeit twenty dollar bill, which turned out cares? to be a real twenty dollar bill. Don't execute in the... people for that, even if it's true. Exactly, it's not, not a thing. The point of the movement is this: color of your skin should not equal a death sentence. For yeah, anything, so, so like I'm white not... people commit mass murder, mass shootings, and are able to be spoken to and calmed down and be apprehended without a single scratch. Like, yeah, yeah. That's the point. A woman, a girl, went to her graduation ceremony with an AK-47 uh, on her cap and on her back. Like you know how they decorate the cap. Yeah, you can and put an AK she, on the cap. Yeah, you can you can draw that. Oh, um, draw! I thought it was like a full yeah, one. No, she had a AK. full one. She had a full AK-7 strapped to her back, like so a real American. gun. Was able to graduate with that. But then you have Tamir Rice, who was the 12 year old who was shot and killed. Um, he was carrying oh, a a replica yeah. airsoft uh, gun, uh, and he was that. shot almost immediately. There's also that um, on the scene. I forget the guy's name, but there was that guy who was like in a Walmart or something like that, holding a, uh, looking at like a, uh, like a BB gun, and the police came in and killed him. I remember that too. Yeah. There, so, this happens way too often. Um, <sighs> this is why people are protesting now because nothing's yeah. changed since then. Um, so, yeah. I think it's funny. It's not funny. Uh, it's kind of funny. The, the, the guy, the mayor tried to explain what he meant when people were like, basically, like, hey, like, <laughs> what, the, what the hell are you saying? said hey folks listen i can't say i'm for anybody if i don't know you 
I'm for people, good people, law-abiding, hardworking, good family, good friends, people with good intentions. If you're black, great. If you're white, great. If you're Hispanic, great. Two things about that. It's going to nitpick a little bit. What is with like older boomers talking about good families? Like, what? Is, why does your family matter for who you are? It's such a weird, like, feudalistic notion of how like uh, social relations work. Like. You know, you hear people are like, oh, he comes from a good family. Like, what does that even it's, mean? It's code speak. It's, it is it's, code speak. If you watch is- uh, the, the documentary um, 13, which notes to the 13th Amendment, it's a way Republicans have slipped in like secret racist commentary. So good family, you know, law abiding, tax paying, community, per- you know what I mean? It's all things of like stereotypically white. That's why when you have someone who, like George Floyd, who was planning on opening a restaurant, was turning his life around, they bring up his criminal past when, you know, talking about him. And that's where you have like the the college student who raped a girl behind a a dumpster. You know, he came from a good family. You know, he... (laughs) He was, you know, planning on being an Olympic swimmer and he, his family knew the judge. Like he, you know, that wasn't rape. Like he shouldn't put his whole life away, but it's all because he's white. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah. And probably wealth too. That always helps. Yeah. But the, the other thing is just, just real quick before we move on. Like, even if we assume he's well-intentioned, I just don't understand how people don't get like social context. Like, sure. Okay. He's basically just saying, I don't want to say everyone's good, but no one's asking you to say everyone's <laughs> good. The, the context is, is racism against, against black people and a, a violent murderous police state uh, saying you're pro black only for the good black people. That, that doesn't work when, 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 when half the time they're justified, their murders are justified and propagandized as, as justified on the basis of them not being good people. So it's like yeah. such an out of touch thing where it's like, I don't understand how anyone who spends just a little bit of time talking about this stuff uh, or, or reading about it doesn't know not to do. It's like the most failure to understand social situations that are pretty honestly basic that is baffling. But that's politicians for you. You can't, yeah. even, count, you can't even count on them making a, a mundane statement without causing some kind of like controversy. Yeah. Um, so moving on, I wanted to talk about just kind of like a nice story about a New Jersey barbershop owner getting creative. Um, <laughs> just a, I, a changing the tune just a little. <laughs> just a little bit, because like, you know, we roast other uh, uh, business owners all the time uh, for their dumb stuff, uh, rightfully so, because a lot of business owners are, well, dumb. Uh, you don't have to be smart to open a business. You just need money. This one New Jersey barbershop owner in Hoboken basically found like a unique way to cut hair while business is closed, according to ABC7 News. Basically, his barbershop's been closed since March 13th before the mandatory shutdown. He just didn't think it was safe to open. So I thought that was nice, too. Already smart, figuring out uh, 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 how to keep his employees safe and other people safe. So to abide by social distancing guidelines, Torres moved his business outdoors and is using mannequin heads since they can't spread the virus. And he's, they're basically training. He looks like he's training people how to cut different hairstyles like they're practicing on mannequins so like they're keeping up with their practice in like a safe way which i just thought was good i thought it was a nice story it's not really a long one it's not really much to comment yeah. on i just thought like see this is the kind of like ingenuity that it's actually good that people should practice more where it's like you know i can't do things exactly how i want to now but how could i use the time uh, to do something better owner? you know some people decide that diving into QAnon conspiracy theories about 5g <laughs> And the global pedophile elite is how they want to spend their time. Other people decide 
They're going to protest with no masks on and uh, demand that they can get haircuts. Some people who actually cut hair uh, decide that they're going to try to learn how to uh, do new hairstyles in this time. So worth considering who's managing their time better. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on, let's talk about a, I guess, completely changed pace. Let's talk about you had a New Jersey cop killed a man. What happened? Yes. So got this article from CBS Philly 3. A video was released on Monday that showed the tense moments before an unarmed black man was shot dead on the Garden State Parkway last month in an incident with the New Jersey State Police. So the dash cam video from a New Jersey State Troopers vehicle was released last Monday by the State Attorney General's office. So it shows a 28-year-old Maurice Gordon of New, of New York standing outside of his vehicle. The Attorney General's office says Gordon was speeding on the Garden State Parkway first by exit 62 in Stafford, and then again just 15 minutes later in Bass River in Burlington County. And the report shows that Gordon went to leave but could not restart his vehicle. And a New Jersey State Police Sergeant Randall Wetzel allowed him to sit in his patrol car to wait for a tow truck. So after 21 minutes, authorities say Gordon got out of the trooper's backseat. Wetzel allegedly offered Gordon a mask, which he intended or which ended in a confrontation. Authorities say Gordon attempted to enter the trooper's driver's seat twice. On the first attempt, Gordon was pepper sprayed, and on the second attempt, there was a physical altercation, and Gordon was shot six times by Sergeant Wetzel. So, So I saw something right off the bat. Yes. (laughs) So, the reporting is just from the perspective of what the police say happened? Yes. How can we believe them when there's been video evidence of like things that have happened all throughout the country for not just years, but just in the past, like few months and every police department ever has lied about what happened. Like there was with that guy who got pushed over and got his head cracked open. They said he tripped and fell. That was their original uh, uh, report. Even though we have video evidence of what happened. Yeah. So this is the thing is that this is coming from the dash cam footage and it's coming from the attorney general's office for the state. So it's the footage was released so you have the video available everyone can go and look and you know state their opinion on what went down and what transpired the thing is that it's just six times that's what i don't understand the amount of violence that is occurring in general but to be one-on-one with someone you should be trained as an officer to disengage you know what that, i mean without I mean, like why why did they need the amount of, of for- like like their explanation for why they they needed the amount of force doesn't make sense from even if we didn't have a video like what why did they need it yeah so why did they need to use that much for- I don't understand Patterson I don't even understand Black why Lives- they had to see Go ahead. exactly so Patterson Black Lives Matter organizer Zeli Imani she said quote the fact that this incident happened around the same time that George Floyd was brutally murdered in Minneapolis and it makes you wonder if the uprisings that happened around the country didn't occur, would we even know about Maurice Gordon? Would there be even a rush to even release this body cam footage? Or was it because of this wave of uprisings and protests that really kind of forced the attorney general to now put this out? And she said, we in New Jersey, we've known about this case for a while now, but it's because of the lack of accountability and transparency by the attorney general's office that we couldn't get any information from it. So we really had our hands tied behind our back. And it's been about two weeks since the incident when this article was uh, released. And Governor Murphy says that, quote, any life lost is to be mourned and grieved. 
And he said, police have a responsibility to protect the people they serve. And Gordon's family is, of course, demanding an independent investigation. And the New Jersey Attorney General's office said a grand jury will decide whether or not the shooting was justified. So we'll obviously hear more about that as time goes on. And but it's, you know, it's New Jersey. It's it's not just not I think the thing about the the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement is it's not just one city it's not just one state it is everywhere around the world <laughs> that's right so i want to talk about there's been another update in the bridgegate uh scandal at some point i want to do an entire segment on, on bridgegate. The bridgegate go over it because it's pretty crazy but uh for now i'll just talk about the update for uh, in case anyone doesn't remember brief recap Bridgegate is a scandal that uh, Chris Christie ran into when he shut down. Well, who shut down the bridge who is, up did for, it? is up for it's debate. It's a classic but, whodunit. Yeah, but it's when a bridge was shut down while governor, when Christie was governor, and uh, it was pretty illegal and um, actually led to someone dying because uh, they were, the ambulance couldn't get to the correct medical uh, facility in time because of the traffic that was caused. And so I'll just read from this article. This is from uh, Herald Mail Media. Uh, Andrew uh, Seidman, uh, originally published in the Philadelphia Inquirer, stating that the judge has reversed the conviction of Bridgegate mastermind David Wildstein. A federal judge has vacated the conviction of David Wildstein, the confessed mastermind of the Jersey political revenge plot known <laughs> as Bridgegate, who was the governor's star witness in its 2016 prosecution of two one-time allies of former Governor Chris Christie. U.S. District Judge Susan D. Uh, Wigenton uh, orders came after the U.S. Supreme Court last month reversed the convictions of Bridget Ann Kelly, Christie's former deputy chief of staff, and Bill Baroni, the former deputy executive director of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. While the Supreme Court found that Kelly and Baroni had abused their power, it said their conduct fell short of a federal crime. Yeah, you heard that. You can abuse your power and not commit a crime. <laughs> The conviction stemmed from their roles in a 2013 scheme to punish the mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey, for his refusal to endorse Christie's election campaign. Again, apparently Christie had nothing to do with this, according to every judge that has looked at the case uh, and how this stuff has gone. Crazy. So anyway, a jury found that Kelly, Baroni, and Wildstein conspired to cause massive traffic jams near the George Washington Bridge by reducing the number of lanes available to Fort Lee commuters. The scandal helped derail Christie's bid for the GOP presidential nomination in 2016. Wildstein, 58, now the editor of politics news site New Jersey Globe, pleaded guilty in 2015 to two felony conspiracy charges involving misuse of government property and violating Fort Lee residents' civil rights. Following his cooperation at trial, he was sentenced to probation in 2017. At the time, prosecutors praised Wildstein's extraordinary cooperation and said he also helped in their prosecution of former Port Authority Chairman David Sampson. The Supreme Court has determined that the lane realignment at the George Washington Bridge was not criminal, Wildstein said Friday on Twitter. However, the conduct by me and others was still wrong. This is not a vindication. My apologies stand. My remorse continues, and I fully accept responsibility for my role. Okay. So... That's really it on the update there. Uh, <laughs> kind of like honestly too mad to even say, uh, comment too much. It's uh, infuriating how people in power toy with people's lives, cause uh, uh, chaos, abuse their power, and pretty much nothing happens to them. Yeah. Um, the whole system protects them. And then it, it then influences the next people in power to then again abuse. Like it's New Jersey. So Bridgegate was just, oh, wow. 
that's the latest. <laughs> yeah. But when people aren't punished for their crimes and all, like, what is what is the point? What is the point of having the public outrage if people aren't going to be held accountable? And it's years down the line now. What was that? Like, um, Bridgegate was uh, 20... How was it, 2015? Oh, wow, was it? I think remember. it was 2012, maybe. 2013, you're, you're right. Yeah, because uh, I remember... Close. I remember how long that track gone. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. boy. Yeah, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna do a segment on that in the coming weeks. Um, maybe next week actually. Talk all about uh, Bridgegate. Yeah. So up next, there was an incident in Franklinville, New Jersey, where some like counter Black Lives Matter protesters sort of mocked George Floyd's death, and we actually seen this elsewhere. It wasn't just in uh, New Jersey. It's around the world. You have. Yeah, it's, it's- People counter-protesting and reenacting what happened to George Floyd as some kind of symbol that it's not deadly force, but you're obviously exactly you're obviously not leaning on your friend with your knee in their neck hard enough to kill them. That should give you the 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 idea and the concept that a person died with the amount of force done to them by a police officer like you're fortunate that you're not you know killing your friend when you're reenacting that like exactly (laughs) so just to be clear what happened according to montana samuels of uh, patch.com a franklinville new jersey department of corrections employee stole headlines for his racist act during an otherwise peaceful anti-racism march in franklinville by yelling at protesters and kneeling on the neck of another man, imitating and mocking the death of George Floyd. It's just, what? Like, I don't understand why people would do that. I saw a couple of videos of this happening uh, elsewhere across the country, too. And it's just, um, it's real vile. Uh, yeah. It just shows you that, like... The racists will come out of the woodwork when they... Uh... Well, it's just it's political. Yeah. Right? So you would think that anyone would be opposed to police brutality. Uh, isn't that what a lot of these Second Amendment gun nuts all talk about? Like uh, <laughs> talking about how they're against the encroachment of government on our lives. Yeah, and then the when right you have, to form a militia. Yeah, yeah, and like I'm, I understand that. I, I'm, not, I'm not against the Second Amendment. I think it's actually a pretty good one, and I think liberals are a little uh, delusional to, at the same time, say that all the only cops should have guns, and that the cops are like uncontrolled, and we live in a police state. So I feel like that's a conflict that needs to be resolved inside of liberalism. But uh, uh, conservatives, on the other hand, are just like complete boot worshipping of (laughs) they lick the boots of the cops, which is so strange because I don't know anyone who actually likes cops. Uh, I I know like other conservatives who like actually hate cops, but in general, like, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. But the guy, the guy clearly killed the guy, even if you like have some kind of you overall like the cops and maybe you think you think the protests are too excessive uh why would you reenact the the murder of someone it's just it's, yeah. it, it is racist because it's just showing it's a, that and you it's, don't it's, actually care other than the fact that the guy was black and got murdered and, and yeah. you thought that was fine it's the image that has you know ever since civil rights even started of people like clansmen showing up to rallies wearing like bringing nooses and like a, there's been instances in the south where i forgot what school but white students home nooses from trees well, as like a as a joke that's been a uh that's been a thing there how public lynchings were like people yeah. would go and see the lynched body and stuff like that so uh, and that's that's exactly what that is if you're reenacting yeah. the murder of a black man in a public setting that message is disturbing on so many levels 
Yeah, I agree. So quickly moving on, in a continuation, I guess this, this past few uh, <laughs> last four stories or whatever have all been like essentially a large shame segment. So just to add yeah, on to that, a New, Jer- shame yeah, a New Jersey woman was fired from her job at Party City after a racist rant goes viral. This has happened on June 12th. Before I even say anything, it's just like, what is with people making racist rants on social media? So this is reported by NJ.com. They write, a Hudson County woman was fired from her job at Party City Thursday after her racist rant on social media went viral, prompting a public response from the company. In the video posted to Facebook Thursday, Jacqueline Michelle uh, DeLuca of West New York appeared to be driving as she recorded a 45-second expletive-laden rant, apparently spurred by a bout of rage. As she explained how a man in another car ran the stoplight and looked at me like it was my fault, Luca used the N-word multiple times, emphasizing the slur directly to the camera. She then called for violence against the Black Lives Matter movement. The video went viral Thursday, notching more than 1 million views. Hours later, her employer, Party City, posted a statement to its social media accounts condemning the video, announcing that the employee produced and posted the video had been fired. I'm not going to read there annoying statement because yeah uh, who cares what corporations say it's the same blank language <laughs> they always say uh and I, I just i don't understand what the issue she was expecting like i don't get what she's expecting but i do have her response to this uh because it's always funny and it's always the same oh, do you remember no. the central park karen like how her response was like i didn't realize what how, what i was doing or whatever even though she obviously did realize yeah uh, how and, what she was doing yeah yeah so first off there's somebody named Isaiah Christian, a 25-year-old Union City resident. Christian told New Jersey Advance Media that he knows uh, DeLuca from living in the same town, saying that they have mutual friends and sometimes run into each other at parties. He said that the video was the first shared by- with him by a friend. He said, the goal was not to make her go viral, but to shed light on what I've been through and many other African-Americans have been through in this community. Christian said of posting the video on social media, he added that he's African and Latino, that, as a, that he is African and Latino, and that DeLuca's comments bothered him. Christian said that he had never known DeLuca to make racist comments before he saw this video. Never ever, Christian said. This is all new to me and everyone from, from around the way that knows her. She has a half African-American child. It was all new. Yeah, so again, kind of well, shows you, you can have black friends and, and be racist. Yeah. Uh, but I want to read her apology because, because again, kind of, it's kind of funny. Name and shame. That's what we do here. Yeah, this is very hard to do, being that my fear for everyone who chooses not to listen, because no matter the situation or case to why I express myself this way in such a way will mean nothing. All right, I meant nothing. Uh, this is my apology to you all. All is capitalized. I regret using such words against a race I know everyone is behind for, and I never meant to hurt anyone in any way. I let anger get the best of me at the moment. And I ask as a human to please forgive what I'm trying to get across. This is not who I am. And for those who know me, I'm sorry, again, if this affected you. And to those who don't know me, I'm sorry times, I don't know, it's one with a bunch of zeros. Because this is not someone I wish people to know me by, but someone who is about the change and equality and with everything going on. I was sucked into the evil and confusion and with all that being said, I wish to everyone around the world, I hope what life has become doesn't affect you the way it has affected me. What? What does that even mean? Exactly. That's two paragraphs of just idiot. Look, I'm just going to say, this person's an did idiot. She, did she, <laughs> she basically said that a racist like spirit possessed her in the moment and then left her body afterward when she got fired yeah, and had her friends and family. For, please for. 
I ask as a human to please forgive what I'm trying to get across. What were you trying to get across? You're angry at a guy and then you used uh, racist expletives. I regret using such words against the race I know everyone is behind for. What the hell does that even mean? What does that even mean? You were just angry. You're, you're, you regret using words against black people, which is a race that you know everyone, I guess, but behind where you mean supports. What? Yeah, I think maybe she's insane. She's not actually smart. Yeah, well, I didn't run that by anyone. Smart person. She's clearly dumb. I mean, (laughs) are we allowed to say that? Do I have to cut that out? Uh, (laughs) uh, Like, I mean, come on. First of all, you post a uh, uh, racist rant against somebody uh, uh and and then you don't even apologize for the racism you apologize again for that kind of non-apology way for like people misunderstanding what you really kind of meant i don't know that's fun that's a fun one so the last thing i guess before we go into our segments i want to talk about <laughs> a there's kind of like a rebellion going on at the jersey shore according to the new york times they had a pretty interesting article so asbury park kind of tried to rebel against murphy um as is their right <laughs> right yeah yeah we'll get to that we'll talk all about rights soon uh asbury park city council voted unanimously this week to let restaurants allow limited capacity indoor dining starting on monday flouting mr murphy's reopening orders the governor's phased in plan permits only outdoor dining to begin on friday mr murphy countered saying that the state has taken the unusual step of suing the city to block it from letting its 80 restaurants fully reopen after efforts to amicably resolve the issue broke down we have one set of rules mr murphy said in announcing the lawsuit there's no question that this virus is more lethal inside than outside there's a method to what we're doing here, folks. Uh, basically, the judge granted their state's request, and uh, Asbury Park basically reversed course uh, after they realized they were going to lose. Because surprise, surprise, the governor actually has uh, governor's orders supersede city council orders. That's how federal governments work, like a federated system works. I thought it was ridiculous. Asbury, Asbury Park is trying to defy the orders for what? You're just going to make this stuff, again, you're just going to make this stuff last longer than it needs to. Yeah, and then creating a lawsuit, it's just all, it's just messy. Things are reopening slowly. There's a reason why we're not going 100%. Expect more of this, you know? Exactly, exactly. Um, Plus, there's uh, Republicans in the federal government want to basically make it so that employers are immune to any kind of lawsuits. You heard about that, right? Uh, Really? uh, or like as we were reopening, that's part of their goal is to make it so that you know if you get sick, even though you told your boss that like you shouldn't come in, you can't sue them. Get basically remove all liability from the bosses that are putting uh, uh, employees in danger. So that, that's kind of like what a lot of these towns kind of take like a similar perspective that like they don't feel like they're really liable for uh, the well-being the of their citizens yeah. being in there, which is a really strange way of of thinking about these issues if you think about it. Yeah. Um, so, Casey, do you want to talk about the <laughs> War of the Worlds podcast? The War of the Worlds. So, since New Jersey and the greater world seem to be in an ever-escalating game of Jumanji, I wanted to go back in New Jersey history to a time where we really thought the world was ending. And I'm not talking about the Spanish flu or any world war. I'm talking about not even the year Trump was elected, but... The time there was a radio broadcast of the War of the Worlds and when it aired. So I'm going to put in the audio for the the intro so you can hear like just a little bit of it. And then I'm going to like break it down a little bit for everyone. But it's it's a treat. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. 
We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, Minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle. Intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. Near the end of October, business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. So that's the intro, and I'm going to play a little bit more of it because it is vital to know that in the first basically two and a half minutes, almost up until the three-minute marker, they do the show opening. And they say that this is a like a, a broadcast of this story. And it's being told by Orson Welles. And he's, he's a broadcaster, a very well-known one at the time. And it's going to be this, this tale of the War of the Worlds. And it's a one-hour broadcast that left the Garden State. And Grover Mill, Grover's Mill in Mercer County in particular shook. So I got this story from Wikipedia and we're New Jersey. It's, it's a wild story in general, but they, they don't do anything throughout the hour-long broadcast to repeat that, hey, this is a story. <laughs> and that was Orson's well, Orson Welles' uh, way of storytelling was like immersive and almost realistic storytelling. So... This is from Wikipedia. Quote, Orson Welles then reads a, a, he reads a prologue which was closely based on the opening of H.G. Wells's novel, modified slightly to move the story's setting to 1939. For about the next 20 minutes, the broadcast was presented as a typical evening radio programming being interrupted by a series of news bulletins. The first few news flashes occurring during the presentation of, quote, live music describe a series of odd explosions observed on Mars, followed by a seemingly unrelated report of an unusual object flying on a farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. So just to give you a little bit more insight on that. So some listeners heard only a portion of the broadcast, like I said earlier, and at the time there was tension because this is pre-World War II and many people thought it was actual a news broadcast. So thousands of people, and this is a time, I think, before television, a lot of people just had radios. So your only form of entertainment was 
listening to the radio. And at the time, there was another broadcast going on of some kind of T, not TV show, of a radio show. But so you only had like a couple options of stations of entertainment. So if you if you tuned in the first one and you change the channel to this, you think the world is ending. <laughs> and so with this broadcast, thousands of people rushed to share the news and called CBS or newspapers or police. And many newspapers assumed the large number of phone calls and the scattered reports of listeners rushing about or even fleeing their homes proved the existence of mass panic, which was a behavior that was never seen before widespread. So hashtag fake news, you know, today. So phone lines were overloaded and electricity short circuited, which made people freak out even more. So imagine hearing the world's ending and you try to phone the police or your family to make sure they're okay, but the lines are dead. And then you have a like a, a blackout, basically. Like it adds yeah, to the just like confirm your paranoia. <laughs> You're like, oh my God, it's actually happening. <laughs> so and just to remind you, think of the time. So this is October 1938. So the decade started with the, the Wall Street crash of 1929. And a decade prior, World War One had just ended and left Germany in turmoil from the reparations, you know, from the end of it. And the Great Depression was being felt worldwide. And World War Two was nearing. You know, the German airship, the, the Hindenburg, also exploded in New Jersey um, in 1937, just two years before this broadcast. So people are on edge and freaking out in general. They're waiting for, you know, because it, it, like, it's right before World War II. So people are anticipating, you know, a German invasion or something. So even though some people might think it's far-fetched that an alien invasion is going to happen, some people are thinking that the alien invasion is actually Germans invading. So what exactly is happening on the broadcast that really freaked out Grover's Mill? So I'll play little clips of it. So basically 40 in the beginning at least 40 people including six state troopers are killed with their bodies burned from this airship and they use the Martians use a heat ray and light the whole surrounding area of their landing ablaze. And the governor of New Jersey um, puts Mercer and Middlesex County under martial law, and the state militia were instructed to aid in the evacuation of the area alongside the military. And the fire departments of the counties were dispatched in an attempt to put out the fires. And it goes on in riveting detail, and I'll play clips of it, but I just, I can't help but wonder how, like, terrifying it must have been to tune into the show halfway through and then believe like your state is not only dealing with Martians or maybe you're like, that's not possible. Maybe it's Germans, but you're freaking out and your, your militia's coming together, your fire department's being whisked out, martial laws being enacted in your county. Like it, and it's just, they're rambling names of scientists and I'll play it for you of scientists and researchers and government officials. And when you, when you hear those names, like, I don't know off the top of my head who like the, the top military person of the state is, or like, who's the, the lead at the Princeton observatory. You know what I mean? They say these names and you just believe them. Like even now today, when CNN or MSNBC or even Fox News brings on someone, some kind of um, talking head, I don't instantly Google their credentials when I hear them speaking. And I take what they're saying at face value because I'm like, ah, the, the news would credit, like wouldn't bring this person on if they weren't who they say they were. You know, you kind of believe. We just covered 
was it last week or two weeks ago um you went over like some of the cabinet members for for yes. and i already don't remember uh, some of their names so it's exactly. like yeah like why why if you're not used to seeing them you, you just assume especially if this is your normal source of news you'd be like oh my god this isn't a satire or a uh, yeah. satire or a fictional broadcast this this is actually happening that'd be wild yeah it's crazy and who knows what those people do or who like you hear and you believe it so what exactly happened when these fake martians landed in grover's mill According to a Weird New Jersey article, the residents either barricaded themselves in their home or they formed shotgun-wielding posses to defend off the alien invaders. And then one of these jumpy mobs fired on a local man's water tower, thinking it was a giant robot Martian. So what That's happened? That's amazing. What, wait, it's not like the water tower appeared out of nowhere. What, it had I think it's been dark. There. You're scared. You're oh, like... Okay. <laughs> You know, like martial law has just been enacted in your town. Like I would, like, and it's a time where this is unhurt. You know, you you believe it, and um, you have the governor, quote unquote, of New Jersey, you know, saying that this is all happening. So hold on to your your hat and telling people to form their militias to defend them. You know what I mean? Like it's so crazy. So what happens? afterward of the broadcast to say it was sensational is an understatement so from wikipedia it says within three weeks newspapers had published at least twelve thousand five hundred articles about the broadcast and its impact but the story dropped from the front pages after a few days adolf hitler referenced the broadcast in a speech in munich on november 8 1938 Wells later remarked that Hitler cited the effect of the broadcast on the American public as evidence of the, quote, corrupt condition and state of affairs in democracy. So that's interesting. I never knew Hitler, like, commented on it. Yeah, it shows how impressionable and how chaos can just erupt by just a broadcast. It says a lot about the public at this time and even today. And Grover Mills has recovered from the incident, of course, ever since. And they erected a monument in honor of the day the Martians came to New Jersey. So the Martian landing site is a historical marker in Grover's Mill commemorating the War of the Worlds broadcast. So I'm just going to play a couple clips and walk you through the good beginning part of it. So I played you the intro. And this is the next bit of it where it goes into, it introduces the show, the, the fake show of like the, the band playing. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. And all throughout the show, they go to the live broadcast and they switch back to the band. So it's almost like on Titanic when it's sinking, how the band just keeps playing to like keep people positive. So every time they segue back to the to the music, I just keep imagining people who are listening to this believing it's real, freaking out, like getting their guns. <laughs> yeah, right. and and being a being in complete panic. So I'm going to fast forward to about the five minute marker where they start talking about observing Mars. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Back to the music. <laughs> and then about the seven-minute marker, you get to the Princeton Observatory. Professor, may I begin our questions? At any time, Mr. Close. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disk swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now, because Mars happens to be at the point nearest the Earth, in opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, President? Huh. Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. Although that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I should say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Phillips, I cannot account for it. So they have these credible sources that are coming on and describing the situation. They previously said the government is ordering all observatories to keep an eye on Mars for any unusual activity, which is all weird in itself. And then they go to the Princeton Observatory to then observe and see like what's going on. They have this professor who, again, credible source seemingly to describe what's going on. And then at about eight minutes, they talk about a earthquake intensity impact that happens about within 20 miles of Princeton. And then at around 924, they then confirm in Trenton that there was some kind of meteorite that landed in the um, the mill area. And about at, I'm gonna fast forward it to the the opening of the saucer because they they think it's a meteor and everyone like drives over to go see it and they have the broadcast obviously the news broadcasters go to the site to broadcast what actually landed there and they find out that it's a saucer and the saucer then starts to open its lid so i'm gonna play this and then i'll close out the this segment so it's right about it's 16 minutes in and all while, they keep on going back and forth, back and forth to the music. Rising up now, and the crowd falls back. They've seen plenty. The most extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen. I can't find words. Well, I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description so I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be right back in a minute. bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, am I on? Ladies and gentlemen, Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilma's garden. 
From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. There's more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. Those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! The whole field's caught up by the woods. The fires are gas-spitting everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. But that's that's basically the the best parts of the and the the more convincing parts of the the whole broadcast is just you're on the edge of your seat trying to figure out what exactly is happening and you're putting your whole faith into the broadcast that's going to give you the information, especially if you miss the first two minutes of it because they even you had don't people scream and then like broadcast <laughs> cut out and the guy's just like uh due to circumstances like that's pretty. It's pretty convincing yeah. if you're listening. It's very convincing. And it's it's something that we talked about on the show before about media and the depiction of stuff. Stuff being right now with protests, like originally protests of this nature, it was always the protesters are violent or the the police are trying to keep the peace. And now this time around with protesting for the Black Lives Matter movement, it's now the the press is being attacked and it's the the police that are being the the violent people being depicted in the stories as they are. And it's you believe what the media is telling you for a majority of the time. And this this incident incident in New Jersey proved it completely because you had full faith in the media that they would present you with information and they would tell you if it was a story or not. And it is so convincing that this broadcast was real because of the way it was cut out into different segments and the way you hear people screaming and you're convinced that the world is ending. And I wanted to bring the story to light in, in this time because as things get crazier, I don't think anything's going to, you know, turn around immediately in, in this country or even in this world. So to be, you know, constantly aware of what you're you're seeing, what you're viewing, what you're reading, and just be alert and aware and make sure that, you know, always, as always, elected officials are held accountable. And the media in particular is also held accountable because... You know, they're making money by your viewing their stuff. And if they're not presenting you with factual, accurate, unbiased, well-researched information, then don't watch it. And then they'll lose advertising dollars. That's the end of my segment. <laughs> so, Mike, can you tell me what exactly is free dumb? <laughs> <laughs> sure. 
So I was kind of just thinking about this as we reopened the economy. I was thinking about how people talked about and how they will in the future probably think about this coronavirus lockdown. And I just realized a lot of it of the discussion has to do with uh, freedom and public health. But I think a lot of people don't have uh, deep thoughts about what freedom is. We kind of just uh, rely on the things that we were taught in school or what the media tells us what freedom is. So I wanted to kind of tease it out. So like, you know, throughout the lockdown, those opposed to Governor Murphy's measures, mainly conservatives, consistently derided the governor's emergency lockdown measures as uh, tyrannical, dictatorial, and violations of freedoms and rights. While most liberals dismissed those concerns largely as um, like the unhinged rantings of an exceptionally ignorant conservative base who are just brainwashed by Fox News and stuff like that. But I think it's actually worth diving into the discussion of what freedom is and what freedom means during a, a, a real national emergency. Uh, because I believe that while conservatives are wrong to oppose the closing of the economy, they are actually right that it was an inhibition, uh, at least on some of our freedoms. And additionally, I think that the target of the conservatives' rage was misplaced, uh, but that liberals and Democrats offer no good analysis or understanding of what freedom actually entails. I didn't know you were so conservative, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So we need to. I think we need to have a better understanding of these like foundational concepts in order to understand like what what should be done right now and uh, what we ought to do in the event of something like this happening again. So I think conceptually we can divide notions of freedom into two different axes that kind of like intersect. So if you think of one axis as the idealistic versus the materialist notions of freedom, and another one as an individualistic versus a collective notion of freedom. So starting with the first one, idealism is essentially a group of philosophies which believe that ideas are foundational to the movement of history and understanding the world. And uh, idealist rights focus more on their legality and potentiality of a right than its actualization in practice. So for example, the right to free speech, the right to own a business, access to healthcare, access to education, uh, et cetera. These are all classic rights in the idealist tradition. People might not exercise their right to free speech meaningfully. They might never be able to open a business, but that doesn't matter because they have the right to do those things. Um, so actually existing circumstances are not important for whether or not one possesses a right, according to the ideal, like idealistic tradition. Rights are either given to us by, like if you take a more religious notion, God gives us the, those rights, or if it's a more secular notion, sometimes these are combined, uh, we get them through a constitution. It should be known that both liberals and conservatives have idealist notions of freedom. They differ about what those freedoms are, and a lot of, there's a lot of overlap. A lot of them, both liberals and conservatives, believe that the Constitution basically grants us rights. Conservatives tend to be more religious and believe that you know they add some kind of like story about God giving the Constitution, <laughs> pretty much. You know, it's like yeah, it's the Constitution by God or floated down. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a weird like secular religion sorts. I shouldn't say secular, like a civil religion in the United States, but that's for another topic. Um, <laughs> and but the, basically, everyone agrees that both liberals and conservatives. I mean, that the Constitution grants us rights, and liberals tend to be more like you know we can Second Amendment's like a, it's outdated, so we can get rid of it. And whereas the conservatives are like that's something that's just like enshrined. But you see, that the, they're really arguing over is not what freedom, like what is the basis of freedom. They're arguing over like what freedoms do we have and rights. So that's yeah. where they share. And in, in, in evolution, can certain freedoms or rights be removed or replaced or modified? Exactly. You know, purism, 
But you know. nobody's nobody in this debate is actually denying that the Constitution grants us rights, things like that. It's how it's interpreted, which I think is interesting. Because when like you the move Bible, out, like the Bible, actually, if you move, because when you move outside of that limited philosophy, you see how uh, how actually limited the debate is. So materialism is essentially a group of philosophies that believe that material forces are what move history and helps us understand the world, not ideas. So classic examples of materialist notions of rights are the right to housing, food, education, healthcare, a decent job, et cetera. Now, that's different from access to uh, being able to own a business, access to uh, uh, healthcare, and access to a, to a job. Because materialists would say that uh, if you have a right to a job, education, and healthcare, and it, uh, then those are uh, the things that, and food and housing, those are things that should be granted to you, that you're guaranteed. Whereas access to housing, access to healthcare, uh, under the idealist notion, is it just lets you doesn't matter if you actually have them, just that you could have them. Yeah. So that's, that's a separation. Materialists care less about written rules and so-called freedoms and their actual actualization. So materialists, for instance, might like free speech and think that's something that society should have. But then they'll note that in our societies, while everyone formally has the right to free speech, in reality, those who are wealthy and powerful have more say than those who don't. If you can just buy media uh, to control the narrative, then free speech is kind of somewhat of an illusion because really free speech is dominated. Uh, we call it the marketplace of ideas. That's what I idealists like to refer to it as. And uh, but, if the, but like any marketplace, if, that's, if those ideas are just monopolized, like people have money and they're spreading it, then like how free is the market? Uh, that's kind of the materialist criticism of idealism. So on the next axis, you have the individualist versus collective notions of freedom. And this is about, like, to whom do freedoms and rights apply? Like corporations. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so individualists actually believe that they apply to, well, as it says, the individual. And the goal of freedoms and rights is to maximize the happiness of the individual and to allow them to live their lives however they want. Uh, both liberals and conservatives actually have individualist notions of freedom. But you're right. Liberal uh, conservatives tend to talk more about you know, the right of corporations, because to them, the corporation is an extension of the individual who is the owner. And that that's how they kind of, that's how you end up getting like corporate personhood, yeah. uh, which is like an affront to most people, and rightfully so. But uh, liberals don't actually have, in my opinion, a framework to be able to challenge that, because as I'll say, like liberals and conservatives differ on the content of what freedoms are and what is a good life. Individualists share that societies are a group of individuals coming together to exist in more or less peaceful coexistence. And I think it's easy to understand like how they're more similar when you see what uh, is a collectivist notion of freedom. So collectivists uh, focus more on what's best for society as a whole. So they don't necessarily ignore individual happiness, but to them, uh, when you're deciding what's best for society, that might be at odds for what's best for some individuals. So collectivists would actually side with the society over the rights of certain individuals, in some cases doing so, they might say that the individual should be compensated for, like, say, a loss. So you know, a real world example would be, you know, uh, it's best for everyone to stay home. Uh, we should have a lockdown. Um, <laughs> but this obviously is that great penalty for a lot of individuals, maybe most of society. So like they should be compensated for the loss, including like business owners and things like that. And that's how like a collective was to do it. They would say like, you know, obviously there's different rights and conflict here. But what's going to be best for uh, overall, and that's the how it works. Good, exactly. Collectivists see people as born into societies, and thus societies have a duty to take care of the well-being of its citizens above and beyond merely ensuring they don't kill each other. So the individualist notions of freedom are closely aligned to what's 
in philosophy called social contract theory. And this is actually kind of the ruling ideology and how we talk about uh, rights in high school and stuff like that. We'll talk about, you know, societies or people getting together, drafting a constitution. That's the social contract. And then people uh, decide uh, what they are, uh, what rights they have. And then future generations basically uh, abide by that social contract and all that kind of stuff, which is kind of like a myth because that's not really how societies form. Even the United yeah. States is kind of close to that. It's not really how the United States formed uh, on its own. But the difference is kind of like where rights come from and what they are. How, uh, who do they apply to and what they don't. So I'll get a little more concrete so, so it makes sense. So I think it all comes out and it starts making sense when we talk about the coronavirus. So like I, to me, idealistic and individualistic notions of freedom are inherently contradictory and this is most obvious uh, that they don't make sense when we're in times of crisis. And we see this playing out today. Conservatives are right to point out that their rights have been violated by stay-at-home orders and that people's livelihoods are adversely affected by the lockdowns. Liberal, liberals tend to mock this by basically saying, you know, uh, uh, oh, you just need to stay home. Like, like your health is more important than like the economy, which is like, in a superficial sense, it's true. People's health are more important than the economy. But the economy in the real world affects people's livelihood and their health. So this is like a, th that kind of position is kind of like an upper class to an upper middle class perspective. The idea that for people who you know don't need to survive on a wage or they have lots of savings, they can just stay home or maybe they have a large support network. They don't have to worry about food on the table or, or like uh, any of that kind of stuff. But it ignores that people are adversely affected by this. So the, the conservative reaction is is they're angry at the lockdowns because to them their rights are infringed. Their and the main right they care about is the right to make make money or and to make other people make money for them. You know if they're a business owner, so they want to have this be reopened. Liberals kind of straddle that line where they're still individualists and idealists in terms of how they conceive of rights, but their like heart is more towards like a collective notion of freedom. Um, but they, but because they lack that materialist understanding, so like, you know, they're not looking how rights are actually, uh, how things are going in like real life. Like, so to get, the whole point gets to is an adequate way of addressing this crisis that solves like everyone's issue is making people stay home, making them uh, deal with uh, having to wear masks and all that kind of stuff and take the appropriate social distancing stuff, but also compensating them adequately for their loss so they're not, you know, filled with the, a, a, like an actual real sense of anxiety and fear that has its real root in the fact that they aren't making enough money. Uh, they're worried about how they're going to get food. They're worried about all these things, which, which, which I don't think enough Democrats and liberals in general actually address. Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't feel like they actually address this, these notions, which is real. People are worried about this stuff. Well, it's the full experience of quarantine. You know what I mean? Right. You have other countries that do have healthcare, free healthcare for their citizens, that do have, you know, great education systems free for their citizens. It's that that I think what you called the the actualization of those rights are already in place. And you're buoying from the axis that I have written down in my head and on paper to <laughs> better grasp this conversation. The collective and the individuals are buoying from the axis of the idealism, you know what I mean? You're speaking in ideal states, but a lot of the times the actualization of these rights and freedoms that we believe we have isn't coming forward. And right. you're seeing people who could not afford to stay at home getting sick and being hospitalized and then getting multi-million dollar hospital bills 
to go home with. So the tax bill, the like the relief bills that are going through are going to supposed to be covering that $2 million bill for his hospitalization for being, I think the one story I saw, he was, I think he was in a coma. He was on life support. He was in the hospital for like a month and he had um, a ventilator and all this treatment that was done to keep him alive, but it cost million, like a million dollars. And then he thinks to himself, well, am I worth a million dollars? Like, <laughs> does that make sense? And instead it's why is your healthcare a million dollar bill? Exactly. exactly. Or a virus you didn't, you know, bring to your, yourself, you know what I mean? Knowingly. To an individualist, it's an, aff- it's an affront to be told to stay home because it limits your ability to go and do things in the world, right? Yes. Like in a, in a literal set or a way. And the, the liberal answer to that is, well, you should just feel differently about that, right? Which I, I fell into that a little bit too in the beginning. Like, oh, you should feel like, you know, you're part of a, a sacrifice thing. It's very hard to feel that when, when you don't have a support network because yeah. you materially aren't being supported by your government or your society <laughs> in any serious way. So like a collective notion of freedom instead would, would acknowledge that obviously it's not good to just have a collective idealism like if if yeah. we all just you can't just wish away the problems of society <laughs> like I, I wish we could like we just be like oh you know we just all gotta you know just not think so much about ourselves but think about others more and it's like sure but what would help to do that is if my housing was taken care of i didn't have to worry about uh food i didn't have to worry about uh, expensive health care i had uh, a job guarantee like a, like a like a like a mature country, and then um, <laughs> all those things. Like a, a, a famous poet, I think his name was Bertolt Brecht, uh, basically wrote something. I'm trying to remember how it was in English. Something like first bread, then morals, or something like that. Right. <laughs> and the, the the this point with that was that like you can't get people to care about high moral concepts, right? If they're hungry. Yeah. yeah and that's kind of like it's the hierarchy Exactly. Like you're not going to be able to get people to care about others so much if if they're worried about their own needs, and right? To- and, and which is actually an irony because because in order to satisfy your own needs in a society, you need other people. So like, what we need to do is have programs and movements that are built around actually materially building our power. So one of the things I was thinking is coming up is we are having the end of expanded unemployment coming up in a month. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be, uh, for people who don't know, that's the extra $600 that people who are unemployed getting. And it doesn't seem that there's going to be a renewal of that, even though we're at times of mass unemployment. And I just don't understand how we don't have mass protests right now around this issue as well. Like, uh, this is, people need that money. And some people get, like, offended, usually more right-leaning people, that, you know, so oh, people are making more in unemployment than they are before and that just shows you how low wages are actually that yeah. doesn't show- <laughs> when the government determines that you need more money to uh, as a to stimulus live. to just survive and then yeah. uh you're making more money than you were before that's a sign that you weren't making enough before not that you're getting overpaid and, and yeah go that go- that plays into the the collective of it all like if you were to go and this was a problem at um the company I was working at, it was the collective bargaining. Everyone was trying to argue that we needed higher wages, you know, an increase in wages, because you're living in New Jersey alone, or the people that were living in New York collectively, you're, the, the cost of living is so high. 
and the quality of living you need to maintain in order to go to work every day is so high. And a lot of people, myself included, went to college in order to get the job. So I definitely have student loans that I need to pay. And that was a decision I made because I needed to do that in order to get a degree, to get the job that I needed to get in order to provide for myself, <laughs> you know, all these, all these factors. And you bring that to the corporation and you say, hey, like if you want me to work in New Jersey or New York, you need to at least pay me a certain amount of money so that I could live in the place that I work. And a lot of times they would just say, no, like you get only a 2% raise and that's it every year that you're at the company. And that's how you have people who are at the company for a decade in the same job because they have no incentive to get a promotion and take on more work when they're not ever going to make the amount of money that they've done from compound interest raises. And exactly. You're to say that unemployment is paying you more. Like you just said, it just says, that people aren't being paid enough in the first place to, you know, maintain a livable life. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So that, that's to me what is kind of the problem is you have liberals and conservatives arguing, but kind of both missing the point of like how things should actually be addressed. You know, the liberals are kind of uh, woke scolding conservatives all the time about, you know, how they don't have the kind of refined moral understanding that they do. When their conception of freedom isn't that much different from conservatives, it is—it's just the content is a little different. But the 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 form of it, the, like the the way that they're able to get to that conclusion, barely differs. See, like to me, I don't really—it's going to be kind of controversial. I don't really care about constitutions. I think we have like it's important that we have those certain rights enshrined by the constitution. But I don't think that these holy documents that forever can ever be changed. We have to remember that they're actually made in a certain context were made by certain class forces and, and things like that. And they can be changed at will if we have a strong enough political movement and stuff to do so. So like the kind of kind of like both worshiping and fetishizing of 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 a document, but that too often often happens uh, by conservatives, to me is just also a strange sense of freedom because it's not actually free even in the individualistic sense, because you have to believe that the, uh, you have to absurdly believe that the Constitution just perfectly grants uh, almost like the Ten Commandments every personal possible freedom thing that you could ever need that has been enumerated on it, even though it's been amended a bunch of times. So it's like a, it's just a strange. And I think it's not freedom. It's 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 unfreedom to be limited by a constitution. I'm not saying that we don't need like constitutional governments are good in the sense that it's a, a document of rules. It's just weird to get fetishized them as like these. Like a whole day um, doctrine. That that can't ever be changed, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so like it was kind of abstract, but the point is we're not going to get anywhere by like just scolding and shaming people about the morals that they have. And we're not going to get anywhere if we just think of freedom as something that about, you know, what can I do or what can't I do? We need to evolve past this where we look at what is actually happening in people's lives, Right. I still have a freedom of speech right now, right, right now, but does it matter? What, what, how can I use a freedom of speech when I'm worried if I'm hungry the next day because of, you know, like, say, unemployment or, and things like that? The, uh, how free am I if I can't afford health care? How yeah, free the, am I if, if there's no guarantee for, for a job, which is the basis of how our freedom works in this kind of economy where you have to have money to do literally anything? So how free are people now when we have record unemployment? The, the tin hat where of me wants to allude that it is it benefits both sides 
if everyone is worried about how they're going to eat more than they're worried about who their officials are and who what policies are being passed, like this is a dangerous time for politicians because so many people are out of work and they're able to pay attention. And that's I think that's why we're all speaking in an idealistic sense versus like what actually is happening, you know, what material stuff is happening. Because you have people in power for decades who have never actually done things to prevent, you know, the awful things that are happening today. Right, but exactly. And now we have materially the greatest transfer of wealth in human history occurred with the CARES Act, which is like another form of like, just think of how propagandistic that is. They called it the CARES Act, but hidden within the CARES Act, uh, besides the very little amount of uh, people's bailout that we got, is the greatest transfer of wealth literally in human history from the poor and the middle class to the already ultra wealthy and and that's what's actually happening while we you know i got a 1200 check (laughs) yeah while we get only get a 1200 check and the unemployed get like 600 extra bucks uh they're robbing the entire treasury and people are arguing to go back to work because they're tired that they can't work which i understand but it's like we need to organize a plan like you shouldn't have to fate. It's such a limited political imagination to believe that the only options are to starve to death or or work uh, and, and die from coronavirus. Possibly, we can do better. We can. We need. We need to break that mold. <laughs> yeah. And that's really like my message is to this because it's not just about the coronavirus. Um, it's how we conceptualize everything going forward and how we'll come and and how we'll look back on this moment too if we look back on this moment and think that oh we could have you know it it was dumb for people to if the only thing we think is it was dumb for people to protest uh, at this time and uh both on both sides or we have some kind of cliches about you know uh it was a really hard time for americans but they we persevered and pulled together then that's not really good we didn't really learn anything from from this moment moment. yeah because it's not like this is going to be i mean this is huge once in a hundred years kind of thing but crises come and go but we need to like build from these crises something that is like a vehicle for change and then people will actually uh go on and part of that comes to uh breaking away from the like ideological molding that we constantly have and how to uh think of these things only in terms of republicans democrats uh and moving beyond that and thinking in terms of like who Actually. owns everything? Who who controls yeah. everything? It's it's not like it's not it's not like a monolithic like the same people control everything. It's 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 like factions of really wealthy people controlling things with different interests. But that's pretty much all I wanted to say. Is like that's our that notions of freedom influence how uh, we th- perceive of what's going on with us right now. And and if we change, then maybe we'll see the right path out of this crisis. Yeah, that was a great exercise, Mike. Thanks. Yeah. I did notes. I made a, I made a chart. <laughs> Sweet. Here we go. So I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. If you haven't already, please, please review us on iTunes. Tell us how much you appreciate what we do. And or don't. Some, or don't. And offer some constructive criticism. I like that too. Uh, if you don't know already, we're also on uh, Instagram. You can check us out, Jersey Matters Podcast. And we're on Twitter at Jersey underscore uh, matters. In addition, we have a website, jerseymatterspodcast.com. And I'd like to thank you for listening this week. Um, I'm signing out. I'm Mike. And I'm Casey. Goodbye, everyone.